0: Well, hello, everybody. Welcome, 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 welcome to another live stream. It's Wednesday night at seven o'clock Mountain Time. So I guess that means it is time for another live stream. I am uh, Dan, your friendly fishmonger from DansFish.com. Do this every Wednesday, seven o'clock Mountain Time. Um, And I am glad you are here with me. Um, Turbo, welcome. First one in, Turbo. You get the prize. (laughs) Glad you're here, Turbo. Hope all is well. Um, So it's been an interesting day. I I had a a super, super early work meeting. So I've been up since the crack. Well, before dawn, actually. I've been up since it was dark and uh, been going all day. And then I got a, a call from my school, my daughter's school, from the nurse that she had fallen and hurt her arm, and like her elbow was hurting, and her fingers were all like swollen and purple. And so we had to take her to the uh, hospital. And thankfully, it's just a sprain. Um, but you know, it's hard to see your little one in pain. <laughs> but she's she's resting now. She's okay. Um, but anyway, that was my day. It was it was a long. Hope everyone's doing well. Mile high, welcome, Lumpy into house. Lumpy's not only in the house, Lumpy's in the house at the top of the live stream. Welcome, Lumpy. Peter, hey, welcome, Peter Thiel. Um, everyone's saying hi to each other. MJ, welcome. Glad you are here. Patricia, great to have you. Vinoxky Tank, or is it Vinoxky Tank? Maybe. Welcome, welcome. Prolific, glad to have you. Candy, welcome. Dank. Dank, welcome. All right, so we're gonna do something today. Um, Dank hates YouTube sometimes, wonder what happened. There must have been another stream where something petered out or something, yeah. Um, so today I'm gonna start by giving a little presentation about killifish um, and I'll show some images and some slides and talk about them and get to the point where I can kind of focus in on their different reproductive strategies and then um after that we'll i'll take questions we'll talk about that or any other fish topics anyone wants to talk about um i like to keep it a little loose but i do feel like sometimes it helps to have some topic to start in right just to get things rolling so it's not just sitting here and waiting for people to ask questions or something that could get a little old so that's the plan today we're going to start i'll give a presentation on killifish and then we'll open it up after that but i'm going to wait a couple more minutes while folks Pile in, Rebel Reefer. Hey, welcome. Glad you're here, Rebel. Good to see you. Good to see you. All right. Dank says no notification for my stream. That's why he hates you. Hates YouTube. Well, oh, shoot, man. I don't know. It like sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. I do the same thing every time, so I don't know. I don't know what to do. I don't know if it's something I'm doing wrong or if it's something that. uh that just YouTube isn't sending them out all the time, not quite sure. Um, but either way, we're gonna soldier on. Um, in that case, since the notification didn't go out, if, if folks would be so kind to share it around so people know we're on, um, then uh, in about 30 seconds here, I'm gonna start uh, the killifish presentation. All right, uh, Prolific, how do you take care of guppy fried? You leave them in the tank with the parents. Um, we, I'll get into that Prolific um, after I talk about the killifish. Yes, you can leave them in the tanks with the parents, especially if you have a lot of floating plants and cover, or you can remove them. It's totally up to you. There's advantages and disadvantages to each way. So I'll, I'll talk about that in detail, though, when I'm done talking about killifish here in a second. Um, if, but Prolific, please uh, repost that comment afterwards because I'm liable to uh, forget as I go through the presentation. All right. HC, hey, welcome HC. Q Aquatic Susie, welcome, glad you are here. All right. Okay, well, we're gonna get going. So, oh man, hope the stream's still doing good. Hope we're still doing good. Ah! All right, Prolific, good. We'll do that then. Just, just remind me, okay? Cool. So I'm gonna bring up a uh, new screen here and start this presentation. Um, just a moment and hopefully everyone can see this all right so let's talk about killifish um my favorite fish perhaps my favorite group of fish if i had to choose just one group of fish that i could have it would be killifish and the reason for that is because there's so many different kinds from so many different environments that i think there's something for everybody um also, they're one of the first fish species I ever kept. Um, some of my lifelong friendships that I've developed over the years have been from killifish. Meeting people that liked killifish and bred them, and helped me out when I was a kid and trying to learn about them. Um, my I call them my godfather and godmother, Jim and Agnes Forche. Um, I, I met them through killifish. Um, so it's not just because I like the fish; it's it's because of that too. But also just some awesome awesome relationships <clears throat> excuse me that i developed and it's just been an important part of my hobby and, and the people i know in my life so that's one reason i like them so today i'm going to talk about killifish reproductive strategies um and first let's talk about what a killifish is this is not what a killifish is right they aren't these killer fish um They're not big, ferocious things. They're about the same temperament as like a live bearer, say a platy, or depending on the species, maybe a swordtail or a guppy, depending on how aggressive the species is. But nothing super aggressive. They're also not this, right? Um, So here's what a killifish is. This is the breakdown. Um, And it's kind of interesting how closely related they are to live bearers. That's why in this slide, there's lots of live bearers here. Um, so killifish are broken into a couple different orders. And by the way, um, let me just say that I am not arguing here, um, for making a tax on (laughs) making an argument for how killifish should be, uh, classified. Nothing like that. Um, There's some scientists that would agree with what I'm about to show you as far as the breakdown of the classification of killifish. And there's other people that would argue that that's wrong and we should shift this one here and that one there. It's always changing. Um, That's how scientists keep their jobs, right? Um, But as we learn more, as our instruments get better, as we can get into DNA and mitochondrial DNA and all these things, we start getting better understanding of the relationships of all these fishes and so it's constantly changing so this isn't an argument for how it should be and some people would say that this has even changed what i'm going to show you and that's fine i just want to talk about killifish and live bears and their close relationships so back to the slide so as you can see um, this first suborder is the killifishes from say mostly um, say, India, Sri Lanka, the African killifishes, and some of the uh, South American killifishes. And then this next fa- oops. And then this next family, or super family, is divided into several different ones. And here's the kicker right here, goodyidye, okay? So this is the goodyids. They're a live bearer, and they're so closely related to these other ones, which are killifish, right? Some of the North and Central American killifish species. And then if we go down, we have Valencia which is like killifish that live in Spain. Uh, I mean, they come from all over, but these are European Mediterranean killifishes. Then we get into the pup fishes. And then from there we get down into like, this is pocillidae. So that's the, uh, that's the really common live bears that we know of like guppies and things like that, right? The ones we're all familiar with. But the point here, the point here is that killifish and livebearers are super closely related. In fact, um, you, they're often called, killifish are often called egg-laying tooth carps, and livebearers are simply called live-bearing tooth carps. A main distinction being their mode of reproduction. But that's not hard and fast. We're going to look at some killifishes that Um, have internal fertilization. And we're going to look at some live bears that lay eggs. I mean, it goes back and forth. It's, it's not, it's, it's kind of fluid how they've developed. Anyway, let's look at some other stuff. Okay. So if we look, whoops, here, I want to talk about where killifish come from and kind of, um, the niches they fill. So on over here, we have, um, a couple different killifish. This is from South America. It's an annual fish. This is an Athenius from um, the Iberian Peninsula, I believe is where this one comes from. So uh, the Middle East. And then over here is a little dwarf sunfish from the Everglades um, or Lake Okefenofi and I believe Georgia. So as you can see, they look very similar. So they've kind of inhabited these, these niches So what they'll do is fish will inhabit a niche, and based on the different pressures it's exposed to in that niche, it sometimes develops a very similar solution as a fish that's completely unrelated and on another continent, right? Another example of this, this is a killifish over here on, on my left. I don't know what it is for you, but it's Poropanchak's brachardi, one of my bucket list fishes. I love this little guy. This is from Africa. And then over here, we have a pseudomugil, which is a rainbow fish, a blue eye. Totally different continents, not really closely related, but look very similar, right? have adapted very similar solutions to the, to the niches that they inhabit. Same down here. This is another poro panchax from africa this is a native killifish the omada from southeastern united states and over here is a rice fish not uh, pretty closely related in fact rice fish used to be called killifish and thought to be killifish but again very similar even though they're not the same fish right so it's just interesting how when a fish finds a niche um it sometimes develops the same solution, even though it's on a completely different continent, right? I think that's cool. So now we're gonna look a little bit into, um, oh wait, did I just do that whole thing looking at me? I did, huh? Hang on. So this was the slide I thought you were seeing while you were looking at my face. This shows the, uh, the different killifish versus the sunfish, The killifish over here versus the rainbow fish, killifish over here versus rice fish in the similar niches. Okay, now we're going to go to another slide. So this is, I just want to show you guys kind of the different types of killifish and where they come from. So this is North America. This is the United States. A lot of people don't know that there's a lot of really cool killifish right in our own backyard. Um, This here is Fundulus Zebrennus which is native to like Texas. We were talking about this a few live streams ago. This is a northern studfish. This is a Fundulus catenatus. This was collected by my friend Stan Sung and is one of his fish in his tanks. It's his picture. Big, beautiful killifish. It's a native. The flagfish, we all know that one. Here is the devil's hole pupfish. Really interesting fish from Nevada. Um, this fish here is another pupfish. This is from, I believe, Death Valley. And then this is, uh, oh, how do you say? Adinia is it? Zini? azina I can't remember. But it's like a salty killifish, a, a killifish that comes from brackish waters up here in the United States. Um, and then if we move to Europe in the Middle East, there's also killifish from those regions. Um, And the reason I'm starting with these kinds of fish is I think we're familiar with like gardeneri and tail killifishes, the Australi, we're familiar with Clown killies, we're familiar with Golden killies. So I'm starting with some areas where uh, people might not realize there are really cool killifish. They're they're from all over, they've developed uh, a lot of different, they've inhabited a lot of different continents because they're a generalist and they can adapt really easily to different environments. Anyway, these are from Europe in the Middle East. This is, I believe, a Valencia species from, say, uh, maybe Spain. Same down here. The rest of these are Athenius species. And the Athenius species are mostly from the Middle East, Northern Africa. And they inhabit just some really toxic, um, really super saline, uh, just hard environments to live in. But they've, they've adapted to that and they're beautiful. They're gorgeous. Okay, now we're going to transition to um, a place that has some of my favorite killifish in the world. And that's Sri Lanka and India. So let's take a look at those. So this here is Aplicaillus dayi. I have these right now. If you want them, they're at dancefish.com. One of my favorite killifish ever. Down here is Aplicaillus lineatus in the lower left-hand corner. Um, This is the fish that they've developed the Golden Wonder killifish from. I like this one better. I think the normal wild fish is prettier, but they've developed that pure gold iridescent morph that we find at like Petco and in different different shops. It's a very commonly available killifish. In the upper right, this is Aplicaillus kershmyrii, which is super closely related to the Aplicaillus blocii, which I have, or Blockii. Um, And then this down here is um, Aplicaillus panchax. So these are from India, Sri Lanka, kind of the more Asian killifish. Um, And that's about where um, the, that's about as far east, if your reference point is America, that's about as far east as the killifish travel. After that, they kind of get replaced by rice fish, um, by some of the different cyprinids, by rainbow fish, things like that. So this is kind of, these are kind of the border of their range. Okay, the next one. We're going to look at these. These are South American and Central American, and these are non-annual killifish, and we'll talk about what that means in a minute. But right now, most of these are rivulus, um, which is a pretty large family of fish in South and Central America. And then up here is Cubanichthys cuban, cubi, cubanensis, I think, um, which is uh, a killifish from Cuba. And there's several killifish scattered throughout the uh, the islands, the Caribbean. Um, Moving on, these are some of the coolest fish ever. These are South American killifish and these are some annual species. So looking at these, there's a wide variety, there's some Astrolebius, there's some Simpsonichthys, there's several genuses uh, represented here, but this gives you an idea of kind of the range of colors and body shapes and things that you can find in South American annuals. Um, Really really cool fishes. Um, okay, now we get to the mother load of all killifish. We're going to travel to Africa, and this is where killifish really diversified and, and got to their full potential. So let's take a look. This first group, these are the lamp eyes. On the left, you have some of the, um, oh geez, procatapus species, and then you have some um, poropanchak species, and then here in the middle is an awesome lampi. It's from Lake Tanganyika. It's Lamprichthes Tanganyikanus. Really cool, really big lampi. And then over here we have another African lampi, which is uh, these are ap species. Now they're called lamp eyes because just like rice fish, their their eyes just glow um, when they hit the when they're hit just right. So so these fish, these lamp eyes have developed to um, Inhabit the same niche is a lot of the rainbow fish and rice fish and things like that. They're kind of a mid to top uh, water swimmer. They're very active. They're pretty quick. Um, they're uh, analogous to rainbow fish. Uh, like the These down here, those would be like a militaniata or militania rainbow fish. And then these smaller um, poropanchacs and apoclychthes and things like that. Those would be like your pseudomugils, uh, your blue eyes, let's say. Now let's look at the next place in Africa. So these are the top dwellers. So the niche these guys inhabit is the very top of the water. If you see, they're kind of flat across the top. Their mouth is on the top of the body, and they're like a little torpedo. And what these guys do these are epiplats species and pseudepiplats species for the annulatus or the clown killi in the upper right here. But these guys, they they live in these mostly slow flowing streams, um, often covered with vegetation, and they hang out under the vegetation and they wait for insects to fall on the top of the water and they just grab them. They jump really well. In fact, all killifish jump really well. Cover the top, cover it tight. If you're going to get killifish because they will jump i promise but anyway these are little surface predators awesome awesome little fish lots of color varieties body is generally about the same on these because they have the same uh you know sit and wait predator type hunting style okay after the epiplates the surface dwellers then we get into these these are your fundulopanchax. these are your um, so fundible panchax here and here. Aphiosimians like this one, the austral or the leartail or the striatum down here. Um, and then over here we have the chrome chromaphiosimians, which are the bivitatums and the bitaneatums, if I'm saying that right. And then here are the diapterons. So these are all um, mid to bottom water fish that they will grab insects off the surface, but they also will eat all kinds of crustaceans and little living organisms that they find uh, in the middle of the water in the bottom. Now, almost all killifish are predators. Um, There are a few that eat algae, some of the pup fishes from the United States and some of the other fish eat a lot of algae, but most of them are predators. So then in Africa, we continue, there's even more, like Africa is awesome for killifish. Now we pop down to the annual killifish, and these are gorgeous, and we'll talk about why in a little bit when we look at their habitats, but look at the colors on these things. Um, These are just absolutely beautiful. This center one is Nothobronchius gunthry, and if you've never kept killifish before, it's a great first one. It's easy to breed. It's pretty hardy. It's beautiful, not too aggressive, Um, great, great annual killifish to start with if you're interested in African killifishes. But anyway, these guys are awesome. So we have like four or five distinct groups of killifish um, in in Africa, or as I wrote it here. (laughs) Look at this. Look how I spelled Africa. Africa. Why not? Because (laughs) I can spell. Anyway, we're going to scroll down. Let's talk about habitats. So now that we've kind of seen the different kinds of killifish and where they come from, I'm going to dig into habitats so we kind of get an idea of where they live and what conditions they've adapted to so we can better understand their reproductive strategies. Okay, so here we go. So this is a non-annual habitat and these are two habitats in the United States. These are pretty harsh habitats. These are pupfish habitats, I printed on. And, um, this one here, this tiny little one is devil's hole. It's really famous because it contains this blue pupfish here. I believe I got that right. I haven't looked at this in a while, but I believe that's the devil's hole pupfish there. And, um, it's the smallest habitat for any vertebrate in the world, or at least aquatic vertebrate in the world. So they live in this tiny little puddle of water, um, pretty harsh conditions. Then here, this is Death Valley, and this pupfish down here, which is awesome, lives in these shallow, tiny little streams in Death Valley, and it gets hot. And the water is hard, hard, hard water, hard, hot water. Um, But they can thrive there because they're so adaptive. Then we move here. This is an aphania species, and look where it lives, in this pool right here, and the ocean's right by it. So this is a super salty, stagnant environment right here. Um, but they've adapted to it. Same with this. Little, this is another, uh, I believe, a famous habitat here. Not much. Just these little kind of pools, these little puddles. And that, and that is where killifish get their name. They don't get the name killifish because they're big killers and they're vicious or anything. They get it because when the Dutch colonized South Africa, um, Southern Africa, I should say, they would see these little bodies of water in the that the word killy refers to those little bodies of water, like a, a ditch full of water. like a, So killy fish means like ditch fish or small body of water fish, if you will. Um, so that's where they get their name from. These little, these habitats where they live, which are often just these small pools of water. Not always, but often. So they can adapt to some pretty extreme conditions. Then let's look at some other habitats. So I mentioned Stan Sung. Um, He's a good friend of mine. Haven't seen him in a while, but really good friends. Um, And he takes a lot of great fish photos. He wrote a column a long time, a long time column for the Tropical Fish Hobbyist magazine. And he went on a collecting trip to Alabama. And this is the Paint Rock River, I believe, or the Paint Rock River system in Alabama, where he collected this fish, Fundulus catenatus. And this is a picture of that fish that he collected once it was in his aquarium. This is not a harsh habitat. This is a beautiful, pristine, flowing water, clear water, well oxygenated. So they come from a variety of habitats, small stagnant pools to nice, pristine habitats. Um, Then, oh, so this is where I'm not gonna get too deep in it. When I present this uh, live, when it's not on video, then I play these YouTube videos and show you the habitats. I can't do that because I don't want to violate, you know, another YouTuber's uh, prerogative. But if you look at these habitats, they're these small, these are African, uh, non-annuals, small freshwater streams. Um, They're slowly flowing. It's not rapid flow. And there's a lot of vegetation. And the streams are pretty small. And they're deep enough that they maybe come up mid-calf. Okay, these small little streams. Then here's kind of the same. Oh, and in those streams, in these habitats, they're covered with, they're kind of in the forest. So they stay cool because the sunlight doesn't hit the water very much. Then we get into more open habitats. This is kind of a semi, semi-annual annual habitat. This is where gardener, one of the garden populations is collected. Same thing, small stream, not flowing really quickly or anything, not very deep, but more open, right? Kind of out in the grassland a little more. Then we have the annual habitats. So it's this pool of water in the grassland or a small pool of water in the forest. Oh, you didn't see any of those because I'm an idiot. Let me go back. Sorry. Okay. So I think we saw these, right? Yeah. So these are the small little pools, the stagnant pools. This is the paint rock river where my friend Stan collected this fish, Fundulus catenatus. And then, this these types of fish come from small forested streams, slow, slow moving streams. They don't like current. In general, killifish don't like current. Some do. Most don't. Um, small little streams in Africa that are covered with forest and a lot of vegetation. And then this is the more open stream where some of the garden rhine semi annual type species are found. They can be found in forests, too, though. There's a great video online of, of Blue spawning in the wild which is pretty cool to watch. And then this is a pure annual habitat, small pool of water in the grassland or in the forest. Now the, the key here is these are small and temporary. So these habitats are going to dry up. Okay. These might dry up or the eggs might be laid on the edge of the stream. Maybe the stream doesn't dry up, but a lot of the eggs will get dried out or a lot of the areas where there's eggs in the stream, will dry out as the stream sinks, uh, shrinks in the dry season versus habitats for these fish, which don't dry out. So we've got these three kind of different main reproductive strategies for killifish based on these habitats. One is non-annual. So in bodies of water where the the water doesn't dry up, the fish just lay eggs like rainbow fish that hatch in a a week or two. um, And it's pretty normal. When you get to the semi-annual habitats, which is something like this, right? Then the eggs might dry up, and so the fish lay eggs which can be water-incubated like a normal fish egg, or which can go through a drying period, and will then hatch when that air, when it rains again in that part of the stream or the bog or whatever gets flooded again, and and now there's more, um, yeah. It, once, okay. They lay their eggs in part of the stream that might dry up if it does then the eggs don't hatch right away if it doesn't they do but if it does dry up the eggs stop developing partway through the de- their development and hang out until it rains again and then when they get wet they hatch again so that's semi-annual and then there's the annual species like these guys where um where it's gonna dry up for sure and so these fish their eggs almost have to go through a dry period. So they lay these annual eggs, um, which the fish grow up, lay their eggs in this small pool, or yeah, small temporary body of water. It dries up, and then a few months later when the rains come again, all the adults are dead, but the eggs are in there and the eggs will hatch. And these fish have been around since Tyrannosaurus rex, and they've been around for a long time which is amazing because it sounds like this very unstable situation, right? This tiny little body of water, it dries up all the time. You'd think that a fish that lived in there might last a few generations, but after that, it's like anything could go wrong and it could die. But no, a lot of these fish have been around for a long, long time, a lot longer than you and I are humans. Um, you know, it's interesting to think about to me. So let's look at some other stuff here. So. That's the different habitats and why the fish have developed annual, non-annual and semi-annual uh, breeding strategies. Now, let's look at this. Here's a detail of an annual habitat in the wet season. It's pretty muddy, it's pretty murky. It's not a pristine habitat, right? It looks like a cow pond is what it looks like. And then over here is the habitat later in the dry season. It's, it's gone, right? And it might not be the exact same pool of water. I don't know, but you get the point, right? So these fish, um, if you look at the color patterns on these fish, I'm going to go back to the slide in a second. But why are these fish so beautiful? Well, if you live in this, it's totally brown. You can't see very far. If you're a female, how are you going to find a mate? Well, you're going to look for this really brightly colored male, right? So the males of these annual fishes have developed these super bright colors so that the females can find them. And so over time, with that going on, the females have been selecting for bright color and we get these beautiful annual killifishes. Now it happens in the non-annual killifishes too. A lot of them come from really kind of dark overhung habitats where there's so much overhanging vegetation that not a, light, not a lot of light penetrates like the the diapteron, the non-annual diapteron killifishes, um, those come from those habitats and they have super bright colors. Um, Let me show you what I'm talking about. Uh, Let's scroll back up and I'll find them here. These guys on the bottom right-hand side, these are diapterons. They come from small mountain streams, really forested, a lot Mm -hmm. of leaf litter and things like that. And the females find them because of their super bright colors. So that's kind of one way to think about, um, oh, of course I didn't switch it. Sorry, I'm not very good at this. Uh, It's better live, (laughs) like not across the internet. So let me show you this again. I'm sorry, guys. These guys in the lower right-hand corner, these are diopterons. Um, and, And look at how just super brightly colored they are. So let's contrast that with, um say these guys which maybe don't come from an environment which is so hard to find so they're they're pretty like they have some definite draw but not but like the I. here. i i would bet you anything the J. doesn't come from a super dark or super murky habitat because it hasn't had to develop super bright colors um same with these lamp eyes um lamp eyes generally come from more flowing streams, larger bodies of water, pretty permanent bodies of water, flood zones, um, and haven't had to deal a whole lot with that. So I'm talking very generally. There are definitely highly colored species that come from clear streams that are in ponds and things, and bland species that come from really murky water, but it's just it's just a general statement, all right? Let's keep that in mind. So, um, okay, I'm going to keep going here, and It's not going to be a whole lot longer. I want to get to questions and comments and um, talk about anything that anyone wants to talk about fish related. But so I can't show these YouTube clips, obviously, but you can search YouTube and find all kinds of uh, breeding behavior. But basically the point for these is these are non-annual killifish, these top two. And so they spawn in like plants or they'll spawn in in leaf litter and things like that too. But the point is they're just going to deposit their eggs pretty normally, like a rainbow fish would or a rice fish would or any of those common breeding strategies, right? Um, Many of the barbs will just go and lay a few eggs a day like killifish do. Then you get to these uh, semi-annual fish and they'll make an effort to kind of bury their eggs a little bit when they... When they spawn, they go down to the gravel and when they kind of jerk apart at the end, there's a flick of the male's fin, which kind of buries the egg a little bit in case the habitat dries out. Then we get into the African fish and this is how they spawn. They're called plowers. So what they'll do is they'll kind of plow. If this is the surface that they're spawning in, the the bottom of the uh, pool of water, they'll kind of plow through it, furrow through it, right? So The bottom third or so of the fish gets buried um, in the substrate and they'll kind of jerk apart and flick their fins so that the egg goes down and gets buried in that. But it's not super deep. It's buried, but they aren't going down too far. But then we get into a really cool thing, which is these guys, the South American annual killifish. These guys will dive into the bottom of the pool, into the mud and they'll bury themselves completely. So they're getting down really far. Some of them will get down, some of the bigger ones can get down three, four inches. They'll be buried completely. They'll just go down into the mud, lay their egg way far down there, and then come back out. Um, They just dive into it. It's really cool to watch. It makes a mess in the tank. That's one reason to use a bare bottom breeding tank for these guys. But um, yeah, these guys are serious about, about their eggs being way down in the mud and, um, and surviving a severe drought. Um, and it's been theorized. Now this is complete theory. Okay. But I've heard some, some experts one who were wondering out loud, why these different breeding behaviors, why do these guys plow and these guys bury And the thought is that since these guys come from Africa, that, there's huge mammals there like elephants and rhinos and hippos and things. And the thought is that those large mammals as, as the pools shrink, they're walking through the mud and they're kind of churning the eggs into the mud and burying them deep. Whereas these are from South America where it's a lot less likely that a large mammal is going to come by and bury their eggs for them. And so the South American Fish are thought to bury their own eggs because they don't have that help from the large mammals. Like there are no elephants in South America, you know. So just some thoughts, nothing scientific, but speculation. That's always fun to do with fish. Okay, so we're almost done, but before we finish, I want to talk about where it gets a little weird. Um, so we think of live bears as guppies and things. And we think of killifish as these egg laying things and the two shouldn't meet. But this is a genus. Um, these guys, the common name is fighting gaucho. They're South American annual killifish. So they come from pools that dry up and the eggs have to last through the dry period and they'll hatch when it rains again. These guys live there, but they're internally fertilized. So the male has a little split in the fin, like a, like a good would have, a live bearer they impregnate the female so to speak but instead of the eggs developing fully within the female and then hatching completely live the female will drop her eggs into the substrate so she's fertilized internally but then she drops her eggs later just like a live bear except for they come out before they hatch in a live bear, what happens is the females fertilize internally the eggs they're not placental so the the female isn't well okay there might be a small amount of nutrients going there might be some exceptions to this but in general the female isn't feeding the eggs and nurturing the young she's just protecting them so the eggs already have all the nutrition and everything they need to develop inside the female so what a female live bearer does is she just holds the eggs inside until they hatch and then they're expelled that's more or less how it works so that's the same strategy that these annual killifish are using. They just drop the eggs before they hatch. That's, that's the only difference. And then they're annual eggs which can survive being dried out more or less. Okay? Now, there's something similar to that in the live bearer world. So these, these are two live bearers, okay? These are both goodyids. Um, They're both, from north america i believe nevada and california and hang on i'm scrolling here so i can um talk intelligently about this i have to look at a couple notes okay so this is crinicthes bailei and then this is the parhum pupfish or uh empatrithes latos, right now these are live bears and they're internally for oh here we go sorry Now, these are like, here's, so here's the Baleae, Cronichthys Baleae, and here's the Latos, the Parum pupfish, if I'm saying that common name correctly. Um, And these are interesting. They're a live bearer, right? They're a good yid, but, and they're internally fertilized, but the females, just like this killifish, the females drop the eggs before they hatch. So this is an egg-laying live bearer, and this is an internally fertilized killifish. The relationship is so similar, um, it's interesting. So, so where does killifish stop and livebearers start? Well, right here, if there's a situation where that happens. So it's, so nothing's cut and dry in nature, like everything's in process, right? So livebearers have developed several times from a population that got isolated and develop the live bearing breeding strategy. And then a few million years go by and a a different group of fish will also develop a live bearing breeding strategy. And then a few million years go by and a different group of fish will do it. So it's always kind of in process. So it's really interesting to me to look at these fish and kind of see that process halfway through, okay? Now, these probably will never develop into full live bearing because they have to survive a dry period, and if they had live young, those would die when things dried out. So they're going to need to keep developing eggs and expelling them before the the pool dries up, right? But there's no reason that these guys aren't on their way to full live bearing mode, right? I don't know. I just think it's interesting to think about. Okay. Okay. Something else that's really cool about annual killifish is they've become diversified a little bit. Most of them um, are what we saw before, um, like this, right? Small, mid-sized fish, very brightly colored. Um, By the way, the females of most killifish are pretty dull. So the males develop these bright colors to attract the females. But that also means that predators can eat them and find them really easily. Well, the females don't need the bright colors so they remain fairly kind of brown so that predators can't find them as easy because they don't need to have the they're not trying to attract the male the male has to attract them so um, if you look here just look at the difference between the males and then the female and that's pretty typical of killifish anyway um so most nothobronchius type species are, are really brightly colored and most of the South American annual killifish have some place on them that's really brightly colored. Um, these guys don't. So these are annual killifishes that have become predators. They've grown large. They've grown mean. So this is, I believe is called megalebius, if, I'm, if I remember right. These guys are huge for killifish. And these guys live in the same temporary pools of water as the smaller species, but they prey on the smaller species. And then this is the same thing, this is an African example that comes out of the Nothobronchius uh, family. Um, so it's kind of interesting how they've, in these little niches, developed these interesting behaviors and in, in strategies for survival. Now here's, this is, this is another kind of tweak on reproductive strategy. So this is uh, Nothobronchius John Poppy. It's a surface dweller. So it's like a mix of this Epiplatys here, which is one of those surface dwelling kind of torpedo shaped non-annual killifish. And this nothobronchius down here, which is a more mid to bottom level kind of fish that um, lives in those really murky pools. This fish is a combination. So this is a nothobronchius, which has become a surface dweller. So it lives at the surface. Um, just like the epiplades do and pseudepiplades and apylochylus species, they're all kind of torpedo shaped surface dwellers that prey on insects that fall on top of the water mostly. So it's, it's developing into that. So it's this surface dwelling annual killifish. And because of that, it's reproductive strategy is they'll breed at the surface and drop the eggs down. So it's still an annual killifish. But it's finding this niche to fill, and it's on its way to being something, which is pretty cool. Now, this is the last one. We're almost done. I hope everyone's enjoying this. I hope it hasn't gone too long. Last slide. This is where it gets funky. Okay. So this is Cryptolebius marmoratus. It used to be called rivellus marmul- marmalad- <laughs> like lady marmalade <laughs> marmoratus, but now it's cryptolebius. And this fish is really interesting. It is a hermaphrodite, okay? So this is a killifish. They're all females, and they all lay eggs, which become clones of themselves. There's, there aren't any males for genetic diversity. They're all clones of the female, Okay. So this is not a fish that this doesn't breed with another fish. It just reproduces by itself. This lone female drops eggs, they hatch and become a clone of that female. Now, there are some lab experiments where they've injected some hormones and things like that. And they were able to turn these into males. Um, But I don't think in nature they've ever found a male. I could be wrong. Um, Someone correct me if I'm wrong, but, they pretty much are just this cloning fish. Why? Because they live in these tiny little habitats. Um, okay. Well, I don't know why, but I'm going to speculate. They live in kind of the most, the harshest of the harsh, very little water. Oftentimes the water dries up and they just live in like moist logs in moist leaf litter, things like that. So they're, they're kind of really isolated out in these tiny little puddles. And so, how do you find a mate when you're in like this kind of damp condition? Not like this body of water. Well, maybe you don't find a mate, so you just mate with yourself, so to speak, right? Um, you drop an egg, and it becomes you. <laughs> and it, they're really interesting. They're they're almost an amphibious fish. They um, they live in water, but they they live in even out of the water in just these damp conditions, say uh, a a log that is hollowed out and they'll all just jam up in there and stay moist in the log. Um, So I don't know, I think they're pretty cool. Pretty, pretty weird, hermaphrodite, right? So it's a vertebrate that that reproduces hermaphroditically. Anyway, that's the killifish uh, presentation. Oh, gosh, that went a little longer than I meant to. But I can't stop, man. Killyfish are awesome. You get me talking about them. <laughs> I'm not going to stop. <laughs> um, So I'm going to um, scroll up. Hopefully I didn't lose everyone. And go through the chat, answer any questions that people had, see what comments there are, and kind of get the interactive part of this thing going. Um, all right. So... Let's see here. Rebel Reefer, I'm glad you were able to catch the live stream too. That's awesome. Yeah, okay. Lumpy Dog doesn't know why we want killifish. Well, I hopefully I explained that with the Dutch name, ditchfish. Fish. It's not a killer fish, it's a ditch fish, right? Um, hey, Scout Town, welcome. Okay, going here, scrolling to where we get fish comments. Lumpy Dog, family species and genus are not real. They are just human attempts to organize highly variable populations. I totally agree. Like, I totally agree. Um, We do that all the time. We try to make sense of things and put things in these neat little boxes for sure. And and the world is not like that. So I agree. They're completely artificial. Um, But the the useful part of it is this. Um, The useful part is by studying the DNA... studying the relationships we can get a sense of kind of how they came to be so which fish came first and then all the other species radiated off it and then we can learn more about the earth and the world that way so to me the 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 family tree if you will um the ancestry is is telling i don't care which box it's in i just kind of want to know where it came from and what it's related to and things because that helps me understand things. Um, For example, for a long time, they didn't know, um, oh, I'm not going to get into that because I can't remember all the details, but yeah, I'll talk about that another time. Um, Sorry. (laughs) Turbofish saw the video, good, good, good. Um, All right, I'm going to go down V-Stag, I keep and breed Blue Galaris, Niger Delta, Strain, and Aphiosimian Ciliate. Great, great, great. Um, so those are, I, bo- I believe those are both Nigerian species. They're awesome. They're awesome. Prolific. Oh. Prolific's out of here, but he's going to place an order. Well, cool. I, I love orders. It keeps the it keeps the home fires burning. Um, let's see here. So v got his Blue galeris from Jimmy. And two from selfish on Aquabid. Cool. Yeah, I like Sellfish too. Uh, I think, if I'm thinking of the same guy. Yeah. Um, someone got some Afiosimins at a local auction. That's awesome. That's the best place to do it. Go to your local killifish club. Talk to a breeder. Get them that way, if you can. Um, all right. Oh, cool. Vstack just did a video on breeding killifish. So check that out, folks. That sounds awesome. All right. V-stag. I have to breed my blues and got some new eggs ready um, on three twenty nine. So tomorrow, <laughs> um, I think I'll get five fry max from these batches. I have approximately 50 eggs and we'll be ready over the next month. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, one of the challenges with blue galaris is, uh, I've talked about this in previous live streams, is that they... Um, You get a ton of eggs, but not a lot of them make it through uh, development. A lot of them will, will fungus on you. And that's just, I haven't figured out, I haven't cracked the code for that. There's other killifish breeders that just turn out tons of blue galaris. For me, they've always been a problem. Uh, I get tons of eggs, but then not many of them make it to term. Um, All right, is raising up some fry of the cilié. Good, good, good. Turbo fish, Dan on the bottom, but in the center. Oh, Oh, upper right. Yeah. This is probably when I was screwing up in the live stream and like, (laughs) like talking about, see this fish and this fish and forgetting to show you what I was doing. Sorry guys. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Um, so killifish dink tanks is asking what temperature 73 ish. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about this. So, this is a generalization, but most killifish don't like high temperatures. Mid to low 70s is good for a lot of them. Some of them, some of the diapterons and things like it in the mid to high 60s, but then there are some species like some of the pupfish and things that like it in the low to mid 80s. Some of the aphaneus and pupfish, they'll take it cooler as well, but that's summertime for them. And so they really start breeding with those higher temperatures and getting active. So there's a broad spectrum, but if you get a killifish, From a pet store and are not sure what temperature to keep it at well research it the information's out there but most of them will be just fine in the mid 70s all right so patricia asked do they jump yes all killifish jump almost all killifish jump and they jump like you wouldn't believe so keep the tank covered you can't just lower the water level and think they can't make it. Um, I've had them jump out of 10-gallon tanks that had two inches of water in them, and they still jumped out of the tank, especially rivulus, They're the worst. They, Because they like to hang out like halfway in the water, halfway out of the water, a lot of the rivulus, So they're perfectly fine. It's like crawling up the tank, kind of like a goby and, and flinging out. So, yes, killifish jump, all killifish jump in general. Just Let's just say all killifish jump. Keep a tight lid. Janet had to bug out. no problem. Avista agrees yes, they love to jump. Heavy lid is a must. Yes, I totally agree. Um, I think we've all learned that lesson the hard way. And, and when you feed, don't forget to put the lid back on. Just just don't. <laughs> Candy, great information, Dan. this is why I like your stream. Well, thank you. I know it's it's that in the uh, it's the fancy lighting, right? I've got to get better lights for this live stream. I know it. Um, I know it's like dark and a little bit grainy. Uh, I've just got to bite the bullet and do that. Um, so people are talking about some of the fish they saw and pointing at them. Fire in the water. Yeah. A lot of them are great. H.C. Aqua, I wish all these were more available. H.C., a lot of them are, you just have to join your local killifish club. There's this whole network of killifish geeks and the, they kind of share the fish among their friends first. And your typical killifish breeder will churn out some killifish, but not in large enough numbers to really offer them outside of their group of friends. And so if you join a killifish club, there's a lot of local clubs. There's the American Killifish Association. But if you find a local club and you join it, um, you'll get first dibs on some of the best fish. And a lot of of the fish that very rarely make it to the general market, um, you'll be able to find through that club. That's the best way to do it. It's not the only way. Aquabid, sometimes they'll turn up on Aquabid. Sometimes they'll very rarely in a pet store or something like that. But local club, best place to get killifish. Um, Candy, okay. Dink tanks, that means nice hard water for the Africans. Yeah. um, So one reason to keep hard water with some of your killies is like nothobronchias. If they're kept in soft water they're very susceptible to velvet which is just hideous disease it's a parasite um and it's just horrible so a lot of uh nothobronchius killifish breeders like to keep them in hard water and they'll even add a little bit of salt to the water not a ton but a little bit of salt to help contradict the their, how prone they are to velvet now not all of the african killifish like hard water um, uh, you know, a lot of them come from these kind of rainforest streams or these blackwater habitats. So it's not a general rule that all African killifish like hard water. It's not like when you think of African cichlids, right, in that hard water. But there are some that do. And note those tend to do better um, in hard water for sure. Okay. Um, Steenfot, hey, welcome. Glad you're here. Glad you're here. Thanks for leaving the like. Appreciate it. Um, keep going. Look for some killifish comments. Um, good. It seems like people were enjoying the presentation while I was doing it. and was kind of out of touch with the, the chat. Um, oh, good. Turbofish is going to get some killies from Jeremy in May. That's awesome. Yeah, I know Jeremy breeds some of the killifish species. That's great. Cool. And if you can get them right from the breeder, that's the way to do it. HC Aqua gave me a super chat. Thank you, HC Aqua. I appreciate it. I'm glad you liked the info. I'm glad you liked the presentation. I always worry a little bit when I'm out of touch with chat, right? Because then I'm not sure if people are liking it or not. Because there's no way I can read the chat while I'm doing the, the presentation part. But I'm glad you liked it. Thank you. Thank you so much for the super chat. I might be up to 10 super chats in my lifetime now. <laughs> I'm getting there, <laughs> oh, it was buffering, Oh no, okay, looks like it got back. Good, I'm glad. um so when I'm doing the live stream, I'm like looking at my PowerPoint presentation. I'm not looking at the YouTube page at all, so if it goes off, uh, I wouldn't know it till now. um all right. V-stag, that's how I've done my eggs. Put them on dry peat moss for six weeks, then return to water and then hatch in a day. So really cool to watch. Yeah. So that's a great trick. And that's one way to help keep killifish eggs from fungusing um, because they're more uh, – bacteria is less likely to travel through a damp peat moss than through, like, a tub of water, right? Um And and the the peat moss is pretty acidic, so sometimes it helps keep the fungus down a bit. But V-Stag, that's how I do it, too. Um, I do that for most of the Fundulopanchac species, like Gardneri and um, Emiadei and Chodestetii, the Bugularis. And I also do it for some of the non-annual species, like uh, Striatum, the Bivitatums do well with that. Um, Almost all killifish will do well in peat moss, even if they are an annual species. So it's a, it's a good hack for getting a good hatch in captivity. And the other great thing about e- incubating your eggs in kind of damp peat moss instead of in water is they won't hatch until you get them wet. So you can kind of save up a big group of eggs and hatch them all at once rather than getting a few eggs a day. And when you hatch them all at once, you get more even growth rates and um, you can feed a ton of food and grow them all together. It's just easier that way. So. Mile High Platt goes, So he's telling me, if I turn off the lights, I'll be more attractive. That's right. Just get yourself a glow stick, Mile High. Turn off the lights and just flash your glow stick around, and uh, everyone will come to your glow stick shake. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> oh, jeez, Dank, that was that was harsh. Dank says, no, Trevor, you can't fix that kind of ugly. Oh, harsh, harsh. <laughs> The yellow striped one, what was that? Oh, geez, dank. I I don't know. I'd have to go back and look. Um, I'm not sure which fish you were referring to. Um, Sorry. (laughs) I'd have to dig back through, and I want to stay on chat for now. Um, Maybe at the very end, I'll go back and do that. Um, Hangar made it. Yay. Welcome. Welcome, welcome. All right. Gladys, welcome. Or Gaddis, not Gladys. Gaddis. Welcome. Glad you're here. Dion dropped in. Fishman. All right. So people dropping in. Um, Okay. Looking for some more comments and questions. Looks like a lot of people just chatting during the stream. So it's taking me a while or during the presentation part of the stream. So it's taking me a while to find questions or comments and I don't want to miss any. So just give me a moment dean super chat this is an awesome stream oh yes shout out to hc aqua for dropping a super chat this is an awesome stream thanks dion i'm glad you think it's an awesome stream and thanks hc aqua for dropping the super chat that's that's great all right dion's trying to get people to like good good <laughs> Fishman can't can't click like and share while he's listening too busy listening i like that that's funny um Someone's asking what type of killie is that? It looks like a pike. Oh, I think that what you're referring to is probably um, that big predatory nothobronchius type species and that genus has changed on me and I can't remember what it is and what the species name is. Um, I'd have to look it up but if you Google predatory nothobronchius um, or predatory notho, N-O-T-H-O, it'll pop up for you. Um, but yeah, they're just like a pike. They look like a pike. They, they kind of are. They sit and they wait. They're an ambush predator. So they've, just like a pike does that, they've developed the same kind of body style and everything because they, that's their behavior as well. So that's the model, the body model, right? That works well for that behavior. So that's what they do. Um, all right. Scrolling. People are saying that they're beautiful. Oh, Patricia had no sound. Oh, no. Oh good, other people did have sound. Good for a second there. <laughs> okay, good. They they refreshed and got sound back. I was scared that something had gone down while I was doing the presentation. That's no fun. Okay. Um, okay I think Dang Tank says salamander fish. Yeah, so that's the rivulus, right? That's those killie fish that don't have to be in water all the time. As long as their gills are damp, they can breathe. And the rivials take full advantage of that. So they're kind of halfway in the water, halfway out of the water. And, you know, that way they can occupy little niches of the habitat that no other fish can occupy. They can reach prey that no other fish can reach. And they can breed in ways that the other fish can't. So it's kind of amazing how they've adapted to all those things. Um, All right. Okay, camp, yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay, V-Stag, I've been told to dip the eggs in methylene blue to get a higher success rate. Yeah, so V-Stag, that's been the um, modus operandi in the killifish hobby for decades, like since the killifish hobby first started. And it, it came out about because some of the pioneers of the hobby um did that and passed that on and it's not a bad thing to do methylene blue is great it increases the oxygen level and it has some antibiotic properties um and however i think there are better options i think methylene blue is still talked about a lot just cuz we're perpetuating um it's just been handed down generation to generation to generation and it does work pretty well my issue with it is that it stains everything like and you can't get it out. I mean, that stuff is a super saturating dye. It's super strong, and so what I've found is that hydrogen peroxide works just as efficiently. And a lot of breeders of that used to use methylene blue, say in the angelfish industry, are have switched to hydrogen peroxide. Um, nothing wrong with methylene blue. Um, go ahead and use it if you want. But uh, my preference is hydrogen peroxide. But it does the same thing. It just doesn't stain my clothes. And when it breaks down, it breaks down into oxygen and water. So uh, you can't get any more benign than that for a disinfectant, right? That's why I use it. But yeah, methylene Blue, you'll hear about it all the time in the hobby um, because people have been using it forever. I just prefer the other one. Um, HC, I am in Hawaii. There's not a local killifish club. Yeah, that's true. HC, are you allowed to keep killifish? In Hawaii? um, Are they one of the species that's that's okay to keep? Actually this is interesting. So Hawaii at one time tried to get annual killifish introduced because it had a mosquito problem and it thought if it could get these annual species of killifish to uh, live in these temporary pools where the where the um, mosquitoes were propagating it could control the mosquito population just like they use um, gambusia for, right? Mosquito fish. In fact, we've introduced them all over the world and now they're a big problem, but they were introduced for mosquito control. But you can't have gambusia or mosquito fish in temporary body, bodies of water. So they've tried a few times to get annual killifish introduced, but they it didn't work. There's something about the mud, there's something about the quality of the soil that is different. Um, in Africa and South America on those big grasslands, uh, or those deep forests, there's just this kind of s- a quality to it that retains the moisture in a way that still allows oxygen to reach the egg so the egg doesn't die. Um, but they haven't had success introducing annual killifish to other temporary bodies of water. They've tried, though. in Hawaii was one of the places they tried it. But anyway, just curious if you can get, uh, if you're allowed to keep killifish in Hawaii. Um, if you are, then I think Aquabid might be a good source, but there are folks from Hawaii that are members of the American Killifish Association, and um, as long as it's an accepted species in Hawaii, then you could get them through the. It's called the BNL, the Business Newsletter of the American Killifish Association. That's where members list the species that they have for sale, um, and you can buy them from them, and they'll ship them to you. Um, yeah. All right. And I'm sorry, you don't have a killifish club there. That's, that's too bad. Dang tanks. What fish is it? African page two, first column, second row. Well, that's pretty specific. I should be able to find that. Um, oh, it says I'm not signed in, Sign back in, then click retry. Okay. Dank. I'm going to do this for you at the very end because, um, I don't want to, uh, take the time to search for it in the middle of the live stream but at the very end i will search and i will find that answer for you african page two (laughs) first column second row i've got to write that down and then i'll move on african page two first column second row okay so at the end of the stream um I'll look that up and I'll post it in the comments for you, okay? All right, V-Stag. Or tanks. sorry. All right, dang tanks. Charles, I had a Beta, 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 Unimaculata jump out in the middle of the night while I was sleeping. I woke up to a rustling sound thinking it was a mouse going through the trash. Found out it was the Beta. Well, if you found him and he's rustling, then hopefully he's okay, right? Yeah, yeah, Bettas are in the same boat, at least the wild type Bettas. They'll jump just like killifish. Um, always cover their tanks. Yep. All right. Charles Fish has a comment. Um, I'm currently breeding Aphiosimian australe orange and Fundulus uh, ruberfronis. Ruberfrons. Uh, growing out fry from both species. In the future, I definitely want to work with more African semi annuals. Uh, yeah. Those are both awesome, though. Australe are great. I love the fundalist genus. I, I don't I'd have to look up that exact species, but there's a lot of really neat native fundalist out there. But yeah, I mean Africa is where the killifish went wild. They, they're just astoundingly diverse in Africa for sure. Um, ACH Aquatics got a live stream. Welcome, I'm glad you did. Glad you he- did. Charles, I've had no success water hatching my Australi. All peat for me. The fundalists, on the other hand, I only water incubate. Yeah, yeah, fundalists do great in the water. Um, fundalists and pupfish, um, they're just so darn tough, the eggs, um, that they, and aphanus, do well in water too. Um, a lot of the fish that are non-annuals but come from really kind of harsh environments, kind of polluted types of environments, um, their eggs are just super tough and you can water incubate them with no problem. Like flagfish, um, I'll get, I, I've incubated hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of flagfish eggs, um, which is a pupfish species. I maybe had five that have gone bad on me. I mean, they're just super hardy. So I, I think that strategy is right on. In the Australi, um, yeah, the peat will keep them from fungusing for sure. The The other way I've had success with non-annual species is usually when I pick the eggs, I have a lot of a lot less success unless I put them in peat moss. But if I just pull out the mop and put it in another container of water um, and don't touch them, don't pull the eggs, often I'll get a good hatch that way, too. Or if I just let them incubate in the aquarium they were spawned in and then pull out the adults, I'll get them to hatch, too. But there's something about picking them and putting them in that small little container that they often don't like very much. Although hydrogen peroxide I've found does help. All right. Gladys <laughs> says, well, thanks for not saying <laughs> it's like the pizza. You're welcome. I just said Gladys instead, but whatever. <laughs> Dubrex21. I'm on the next step of my beta breeding project. Cool. The females now swimming with mail it's up to them all right hope it works keep an eye on them because uh they can get a little fighty <laughs> if it's better splendens they can get a little aggressive but great 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 i hope it goes well dubrex uh keep us posted like next week i want to hear how it went i hope you have good luck rod late but we'll watch replay good in regards to last week's stream and cloudy water okay i got a uv sterilizer my cloudy water has diminished significantly, hoping the cause will also be resolved. Great, Rod, I'm glad to hear it. Um, that's wonderful. For those that don't remember, Rod had that milky, white, cloudy water uh, hit his tank. It's horrible. I think we've all seen it if we've been doing this for a few years. And what was interesting about his tank was it had been up and well established for a long time. So, um, you know, usually that happens um, with a new tank as it gets established so it was interesting that it happened to his established tank so we were trying to figure what could be the root cause don't know but hopefully it just stabilizes so rod i'm glad to hear it's cleared up and i i think it'll stabilize in a while v how many different killie species do you have currently v-stack i don't have a ton i have Jordan L. floridiae which is just a fancy way of saying florida flagfish right um i have aplikylis blackeye from sri lanka which I like. It's pretty hard to find. And then I have Aplikylis Dei, which is really hard to find. Um, I have pictures of them at dancefish.com if you want to see them. They're not necessarily the best pictures, but I've also got some videos on this uh, YouTube channel, too, if you want to check them out. Um, Do I have the Block Eye? Yeah, I think I posted the Aplikylis Block Eye video. So I only have like three right now. Um, But killifish used to be pretty much all I did. And I've raised lots of species, um, sometimes in really big numbers over the years. And if I had to go back to just one species, it would be killifish. And I'm trying to ship in a bunch from Nigeria um, that I'm working on that. So once I clear out the fish that I currently have, then I'll get a bunch of killifish again. Um, All right, Vstag, thanks. I will be using peroxide from now on. Cool. Yeah, try it out if it works for you. Yeah, great. Um, You know, something that's sometimes fun is to divide a spawn in half, put half in the methylene blue like you've been doing, and then half with peroxide and just see what works best with your water. Because uh, that's something else to consider is that, you know, there's... Someone will come over here and see what I'm doing and it works awesome, and then it won't work for them because their water is different. Or I'll go to a different hobbyist house and say, hey, I'm going to try that, but it doesn't work for me. So, you know experiment a bit hope it hope it works for you um mile high is going to bed sweet dreams mile high sweet dreams all right charles i found that if i mix pima fix in with the water i add to the peat moss i have even less fungus eggs. well that's good to know i've never tried that um charles have you ever used pima fix with hydrogen peroxide i, I wonder if i can mix them i don't know So you dampen the peat moss with water that has PimaFix in it. Okay, I hear what you're saying. Yeah, cool. Thanks. I That's an interesting tip, Charles. I, I hadn't heard of that. Q Aquatics. Great stream. I just finished editing a video and then deleted it by accident. Oh, man. I hope you have the root files so you can get it back up and going. That's the worst. Like, it just takes forever. Anytime you do a video that isn't just pure live and... Upload it anytime you're editing. It's a lot of work. So I feel for you, Suzy Q. I do. Um, Dubrex21, yes, I was getting impatient from my blue rams eating their eggs. Went off to new owners. Tank is now free for babies in the coming weeks. I'm up for a new challenge, thank you. Cool, cool, all right. Yeah, rams can sometimes be hard. In fact, most breeders of rams these days pull the eggs and incubate them like angelfish eggs artificially uh, for that reason. We've just... And and the reason is is the farms do that. Um, So rams have now been captive bred by fish farms for so long. That's how we get all those different color morphs and balloon rams, which I'm not going to say anything negative about because I don't want to start that discussion. (laughs) If you like them, great. But, um, you know they've been in so long. Oh, whoops. I'm going to center this camera and in the farms of just, they pull the eggs all the time. So that parental instinct, uh, sometimes get gets weakened. If generation after generation, the fish don't have to be parents. And I think that's happening to the Rams just like it does with angel fish and discus and things like that. Well, I'm sorry, not so much with discus because it's super hard to artificially raise the fry, but you know what I mean? Uh, Not so much discus. Charles, do you import any fish from international wholesalers? Iquitos, Bogota, Manaus. I could. um, I I do. But not from uh, South America. Um, I do have a great contact, a couple great contacts in South America. And I could order them. But the issue is that there's so many people right now that already import from South America. I don't feel that There's a need in the hobby to do that. Um, It's just done all the time. Um, Out of Peru and out of Colombia. Manaus, uh, yeah, even Manaus, I think. uh, Brazil did a big ban. I can't remember if fish are getting out of Brazil much now, but there has to be a ton of species they're exporting. It's too important for their economy not to. But um, anyway, the South American fish I, I don't do just because... So many others do. Um, they're a staple for the wholesalers and transshippers to bring in. So my next order uh, from an international collector will be out of Nigeria. At least that's the hope. Um, so yes, I have, but not South America. Mostly Asia and Africa. Um, Mile High's back. He couldn't, couldn't resist. Couldn't stay away. It's like it's like in The Godfather, right? He keeps a- sucking me back in. Well, that was a good accent. <laughs> Let's erase that from from the archive of the YouTube world. <laughs> oh well, <laughs> Charles. I haven't tried hydrogen peroxide yet, but maybe one day. I wonder if the peroxide would destroy the Pima fix since it's an herbal med. Yeah, I don't know. Don't know. Um, Beastag never used the blue. Just been suggested. When I asked about better success rate, I use RO, right, and keep the TDS around 200 ppm. Okay, yeah, good, good. That sounds pretty standard, uh, V-Stag. Um, yeah, I mean, totally up to you. Um, I used methylene blue for a long time, and then I discovered hydrogen peroxide, and I switched because I had just as good, if not more, success, and I didn't stain everything. And um, I knew it broke down into just water and O2 oxygen, so... I felt very comfortable using it. So that's why I did it. Um, Mile high. They're still bringing in fish from Brazil. Yeah. They would have to like project Piaba and all that. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> his perfect accent. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, Mile high. A lot of my plecos are imported from Brazil. Really? Maybe it's just the Zingu river. Then Uh Zingu river. However you pronounce an X, right? Um, where they're banned. Um, I just know that a little while ago, Brazil really cracked down. Um, I'm not saying they don't let fish out, but they, they really cracked down. And maybe I'm, so I think where I heard that was I have friends that like to go down there and collect, and they used to just bring the fish back. They'd go collect them and bring them right back. And maybe that's where it cracked down. Maybe now you can only bring them back through an exporter from brazil or something like that so yeah i I know fish are still coming from brazil um otherwise there wouldn't be wild cardinal tetras and things from piaba because piaba's in brazil right project piaba i think so okay um it's 98 cents at walmart yeah yeah peroxide's super cheap um mile high yes they are cracking down it's getting tricky yep yeah, for sure, um, and that's just the way of the world. It feels like it feels like uh, you get you always get more regulation, never less, right? It just kind of builds up on you. Um, we used to be able to get fish from Australia, now we can't get any. Used to be able to get all kinds of fish from Brazil. Now there's uh, definitely species that that you can't, and um, and I think the way you have to export them is is more monitored and things like that. Anyway, I'm not an expert on shipping out of Brazil, so I won't go any further into that. All right, so um, it's been an hour and 20 minutes. We've reached the bottom of the chat. So this is where I tell you, if you have any questions that you really need answered or comments you really wanna get out there, now's the time because in a few minutes here, since we're at the bottom of the chat, um, we're gonna go ahead and shut this stream down. I did wanna say thanks to everyone for bearing with me through that presentation. Um, And especially the points where I'd like to be like describing the fish and forgetting to show them to you. (laughs) So sorry about that. (laughs) That had to have been interesting on your end. (laughs) I'm describing this beautiful fish and all you're seeing is my face going, hmm, (laughs) not sure how beautiful that is. Anyway, um, so thanks everyone for joining in so glad you're all here um oh wait missed some miss some comments so i'm going to scroll down here before i shut her down okay just folks saying hi eric you made it just in time for the end <laughs> folks saying oh you're welcome for the stream glad you guys liked it Gaddis, a question what do you think about breeding native fish to export to other countries for aquarium use not food fish um I think it's I think it's great. Um I don't think there's any problem with that. Um breeding native fish is perfect. And if you can get licensed to export, I get requests all the time from people that want native fish. Um all the time. And it's funny like the fish in our own backyard we're like, "Ah, eh, yeah, I see it every day." So it loses its kind of appeal, but for someone in Europe or Japan or something that can't get a hold of it. They really want them. Um so yeah, I think it's a great idea. Before you did it though, I would really check into the import export regulations. Um I would see what the hoops are you're going to have to go through to export to the countries you want to export to because it can get pretty complicated. And I think that is where most people that want to do that um kind of get to that point and a lot of them kind of decide, you know what, I don't know if it's worth it. It's, it's, a, it's a lot of regulation, it's a lot of forms, it's a lot of um, things to go through, to export. So I would say if you're into it, research it, um, figure out what it would take to get that license and to, to legally get fish into other countries and things. Um, maybe pick one, maybe start with Canada. Canada needs fish so bad. Um, and uh, people from Canada are constantly asking, can I get fish from you? So even if you just exported to Canada, that might be the place to experiment. And then if that gets going well for you and you figure out kind of the process, then maybe you can branch out into other areas. I don't know. I'm just spitballing. But yeah, I think I think breeding native fish and shipping them out would be a great thing to do. Um, I don't. You know, it depends on if, is it just for a hobby? Yeah, for sure. If you're setting up as as a business, I'd really research first. Um, Make sure that you had some demand. um, Make sure that you could churn out large numbers of fish regularly. And that's something with the native fish. Often they only have a very specific breeding season. And it's right when the water temperature rises to about 60, 65, that, that can trigger spawning. But then they'll have one or two spawning events, and then a lot of them won't spawn again. So it's very seasonal. Um, You might also check with Saks Aquatics and Jonah's Aquarium. Um, I don't know if they export or not, but if they do, um, then you know that it can be done, because those guys are doing it. They breed and they collect. Um, I don't know if they export, but they definitely sell native fish all around the United States. Anyway, hope that was... Helpful? I don't know. Those are my thoughts. I don't know if that's helpful or not, Gaddis. but it's a cool question. Um, Lumpy dot great live stream. Thanks, Lumpy. Glad you liked it. Glad you liked it. Um, Charles, I see that you apparently have the True Stunt Cory Yeah, on your website and not CO20. Where did you get them from? So Charles, I that's what they were sold to me as. I got them from a wholesaler in Florida. So I don't, I'm not a quarry expert when it comes to identification. Um, they might just be the, um, the, the 20s. Um, they very well could be that common C number. Um, they did come from just uh, a wholesaler uh, in Florida. So I don't know if they're the true Arcoatis or not, but I did get on Planet Catfish and I did look at the difference And to me, they do look like Arcoatis. If you're interested in them and know how to identify them, let me know. Um, Send me an email, dan at dansfish.com. And I'll get some really close-up pictures for you, or I'll take a video, and you can let me know if they are. But I forget. I think the reason was if the stripe went through the bottom of the caudal fin or not. Was that the difference? That might have been the Molini. Um, I can't remember, but I did take a look and to me, they looked like Arcuatis, but I'm not an expert. So I hate to claim that they are for sure. So if, if Charles, if you're like one of the Cory geeks that knows all the, the differences and it's important to you to have Trilineatus instead of Julii, you know, and all that kind of thing, then, um, I can't guarantee they're Arcuatis. I'm just reselling them as what I got them as. Yeah. Um, Mile High Plecos, I think is... Gaddis. yeah, I figured with not seeing anyone doing it. Yeah, I think the export gets you. But you know, there are people that do export, I know that. Um, Mile High, I would for sure, I had customers before I would ever attempt it. Oh yeah, so he's saying I, he would make sure he had customers before he tried it. Yeah, yeah. Um, HC, I have red shiners spawning right now. That's awesome, they're so beautiful. Like all, a lot of those native fish, um, a lot of those shiners, when they get into their breeding color, man, it's like it's like fire in the water. They're just so gorgeous. That is beautiful. Kyle, hey, welcome, Kyle's Wild World. Glad you made it. Um, so, Kyle, um, we did a whole presentation on killifish and the different habitats they live in and the niches they live in and how that affects reproduction and the reproduction strategies. So, um, if you're interested in that, uh, when this is uploaded. Uh, Check it out. You missed some, I think, kind of cool stuff. Something I'm really excited about anyway. Um, Oh, Kyle, you missed a great Killy presentation, says Candy. Great. (laughs) Thanks. Candy covered it. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Charles, I'll take a look. They're convincing. I own scene number 20, and yours have some differences. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, I really... I thought they were arcuotis, but I'm not an expert on quarries by any means. Kyle, oh man, <laughs> a lot of Kili nerds are, yeah, my Kili presentation brings all the nerds to the yard, right? <laughs> all right, good. Well, um, anyone else have any questions or comments that they want uh, looked at or to say or to ask uh, before we close out here? Now's the time because in a little while here, we're closing her out. Right All right, so um, I'm going to look up what that killifish was in the African section on page two, first column, second row, and post that. Um, I'm gonna go ahead and shut this video stream down, but I'll comment on that so that I can answer that question. I believe that was Vstag, um, was it? Uh, I was getting Vstag confused with someone earlier. Um, maybe it was Dank, I can't remember for sure, but I'll post that in the comments below. So hang out if you were one of the people wanting that information. Um, everyone have a great night. Thank you for being here. I appreciate it. I I love having a place to geek out and have other people geek out with me on on fish. So um, until next, it was dank tanks. Thanks, V Stack. Yeah, until uh, next Wednesday at seven o'clock p.m. Mountain Time. Until then, have a good one. Thanks, everyone. And Dank, I'm gonna uh, post that answer if I can if I can figure it out uh, shortly here. All right, thanks guys. Have a good.